Power Hair Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Aoife, and this is episode number 24. Today, I've got a fantastic guest interview lined up for you guys, which I'm really excited to get into. But before we get started on that, I just wanted to say welcome to anybody who is new listening to the podcast today and let you know a little bit more about what to expect on here. So on the Empower Hair Fitness podcast, each week I talk about various topics related to nutrition and fitness for females to help you simplify the world of nutrition and fitness in order to get better results. And in today's episode, I am joined by Jordan Syed. So for those of you who don't know, Jordan is an online coach based in New York. He previously coached Gary Vaynerchuk one-on-one for over a year at the beginning of his career. He has a Bachelor of Science in Health and Behavior Science with a focus on strength and conditioning. And he's also a five times world record powerlifter. In today's episode, we chat about all things female nutrition and fitness, especially about the scale and how body weight fluctuations tend to impact females. If you want to check out Jordan, you can go to his Instagram page, which is at Syat Fitness. On there, he posts a lot of really fantastic information simplifying nutrition and fitness. As always, if you enjoy today's episode and you learn something from it, please feel free to share it with your friends or family or take a screenshot and share it on Instagram. You can tag me at ActivelyEFA and you can tag Jordan at Syed Fitness. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. As I was saying before we hit record, I'm a big fan of yours. I actually sent you a message on Instagram years ago when I was first starting my fitness journey to ask you about, you know, how you did so well with just growing your Instagram and creating amazing content. And the advice you gave me was something that I've always followed from there on. And it was about just um, putting out content that's valuable to the people that are following you and always trying to serve them first. So thank you so much for that. Of course, that makes me so, so happy to hear. I'm really, really glad to hear that. And before we get stuck into um, any questions, I thought it might be good for you to just introduce yourself to the audience for anyone that doesn't know who you are. Tell them a little about yourself and what you do. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, if you listen to my content before, you know I can talk for a long time. So <laughs> if I'm talking too much, just tell me to shut up. Um, <laughs> I, I got into, I'm a personal trainer, strength coach, nutrition coach. I got into the fitness industry at a very young age uh, because I started wrestling when I was eight years old. And I'm a small guy. I'm like five foot four. I'm from a small family. So my mom was like, I don't want my brother and I, my older brother and I to be picked on. So she wanted us to wrestle. And uh, I remember I was sitting in my living room when I was eight and she was like, hey, I'm going to, I want you two to wrestle. And the only wrestling that I knew at the time was like, WWE style, like you hit people with chairs and, and furniture, like just fake wrestling. I remember I looked at her, I was like, you want me to hit someone with a chair? And she was like, no, you idiot, like Olympic style wrestling. And I still didn't know what that meant, but she put us in it and I became obsessed with it. It's like, it's all I thought about. I loved it. And so I wrestled from eight years old to 18 years old. When I got to high school at 14, I made varsity as a freshman, but I had to cut a lot of weight. So I was cutting a lot of weight every week. And I was very good from a technique perspective and from an endurance perspective, but I was 14 years old going up against mainly 17, 18 year olds because I was on varsity. So my strength wasn't up to par. So I was like, I need to get stronger, but I don't know how. So I reached out, I, uh, I wrote to a gym that was a couple towns over from me. I was living in Boston, Massachusetts, and I wrote to a gym. I was like, Hey, listen, um, 
I'd love to intern for you. If you do internships, like, I don't know, I'll take the trash out. I'll clean the floor. I'll do whatever you want. Just let me come and learn from you. And fortunately they let me do that. And fortunately they were also very science-based. Like I, I did not spend much time dealing with a lot of misinformation in the fitness industry because they took me under their wing and I worked there all through high school from 14 to 18 years old. And they really set me up for a very science-based approach to fitness. I'm still very, very friendly with them today, to this day, the coaches that took me under their wing when I was 14 years old. And, um, that was what kickstarted it for me. And I remember my first client that I ever coached there. I think the first one I ever coached, I was 16 years old. By the time they started letting me coach people one-on-one, his name was Fred. He was a little over 60 years old. He, uh, he didn't want to lose any weight. His only goal was just to be able to pick his grandson up without hurting his shoulder. And uh, I remember as a teenager, you know, I was a wrestler. I was in high school, young boy. Like All I could really conceptualize was working out to look good naked. That's like what my whole like perspective on life was at that point in my life. So to have someone whose goal is completely completely and utterly unrelated to how they look. It was very new to me, but also very endearing and unique. And I loved, that's when I fell in love with coaching was when I really started coaching people based on their goals, not my goals. And that was, uh, that's when I got into it and I've been doing it ever since and uh, live in New York city now and do a, a lot of online stuff. So a lot of Instagram, YouTube podcast, all that, and just trying to help people. Awesome. And I guess a big part of your, another big part of your story was um, working with Gary Vaynerchuk as well at some point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I started my online business without knowing I was starting an online business in 2011 when I was in college. I just made a website and I was, I was writing articles before I knew that online coaching wasn't a thing yet. Like Instagram wasn't, I wasn't on Instagram. Instagram, I don't think it existed in 2011. Um, so I was just writing articles. And I was doing that every week for years and years and years. After I graduated college, I had already started to build up some people uh, that I was coaching online who had asked me to, to coach them. And so I moved to Israel. I was living in Tel Aviv for a while. And Gary Vaynerchuk's team found my work online. And they're like, would you like to coach Gary? And at first I thought it was a joke. Like I didn't think it was real. And uh, I eventually, I, I flew from Tel Aviv to New York to coach Gary for an hour interview. And then I flew back to Tel Aviv. My roommate didn't even know that I had left the country. I didn't, I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to jinx it. And, uh, and then like six weeks later, I get a text from uh, an unknown number saying, are you ready? And I was like, who the fuck is this? And, uh, and then Gary texts me a picture of himself flexing. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I just said to Gary, who the fuck is this? And, and that's, how I found, that's how I found out I got the job. Wow, what a story. That's amazing. Yeah, it was fun. I coached him for three years, seven days a week. So there were no weekends, no vacations. Wherever he was, I was. If he was in Hong Kong, I went to Hong Kong. If he was in uh, in the United Kingdom, I was in the United Kingdom. If he was in LA, I was in LA. Wherever he went, I went for three years straight. Wow, that is incredible. What do you think was the biggest thing you learned from working with him so closely? There's a lot. There's a lot that I learned from him. I, I would say... It's funny, I think at different points in my life, since I've stopped coaching him now for a couple of years, I think my lessons have changed as I've grown and matured and looking back on my experience with him. And I would say in this moment, I think one of the greatest things I learned from him is what's right for one person 
doesn't mean it's right for you, even if you really admire that individual. And for me, that I, I admire Gary unbelievable amounts. I, he's like a father figure to me. We still talk on a very regular basis. His work and his accomplishments inspire me like overwhelmingly. But I also know I don't want his life. And that's okay. And I think it's really important to understand you can admire someone, you can respect someone, you can look at what someone else is doing and really appreciate it. But that doesn't mean that's the right life for you. And Gary pushes that relentlessly. He's always talking about doing what works for you, finding what brings you happiness, what brings you fulfillment, what brings you joy. And, uh, you know, when I was with him for three years straight every day, it was easy for me to fall in the trap of without knowing it, of being like, I want to be like Gary. Like I want to do what he's doing. I want to have this massive empire of a business and I want to travel the world nonstop. And after it, it stopped and that now I can just sort of be at home without traveling all the time and, and be with my fiance and go to jujitsu every day and have my routine. This is what works for me and what works for me might not work for him. And what works for him might not work for me. And coming to terms with that is a, is a really wonderful lesson. Yeah, I think that's a really great lesson. And it applies to a lot of things in life, you know, you know, admiring someone else and seeing what they're doing. Um, but then understanding that like you have your own life and you have your own goals and you know, you have your own things to work towards. Very Absolutely. True. Yeah. So let's get into chatting about uh, all things fitness. So I was thinking for today, a uh, topic that I wanted to chat with you about that I feel like you cover quite well on your Instagram is uh, fear around the scale weight and how women often let that number control their day, especially if they, you know, jump on the scale and it's gone up slightly one day and, mm. or, you know, it goes down, like, you know, allowing that to become a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And um, it really is something that a lot of women struggle with. Mm. You, you know, so yes, a hundred percent. And I think this is a very important topic to discuss for many reasons, not least of which it can carry over to so many other aspects of life. And I want to dive into this. I will also say from the very beginning, I know you work almost exclusively with women and I work mainly with women. About 75% of the people I work with are women. Uh, and one of the things I think is really important to, to be made aware of is I think many women assume that men don't struggle with the scale. And I think a lot of that assumption comes from men not expressing that struggle with the scale as openly as women do. But I can tell you 100% men struggle with it too. And, and just because they might act like it doesn't bother them or they don't bring it up does not mean they're not struggling with it as much. And um, I think there is more societal pressure on women than there is on men. There, there's no question, but there's more societal pressure on women than there is on men. But men struggle with it too. And the reason I think that's important to say is because I think sometimes women will, will be like, oh, like they don't have to worry about it. It doesn't matter. Like screw them. It's like, no, no, like we're all struggling with it. Like we all are. And I think the more we can understand that, the more we can be like, Hey, you know what? This is something we're all struggling with, or many of us are struggling with. So it's okay. It, it doesn't mean I'm bad or, or that I'm damaged or anything. It just means this is a, a common thing to struggle with. So the more we can normalize that, the better, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, the, I think one of the major reasons I see people struggling with the scale is because, unfortunately, in uh, we, we can sort of see the progression, right? So earlier, the scale was made out to be the end all be all, yeah. and this was this was like this was I would say like late '90s or early 2000s. Like, if you're not losing weight, 
then you're screwing up. And it's like, well, that's, that's just a very simplistic overview of how the scale works. That's not true. There are many ways to make progress outside of simply losing weight. And you're def- even if you're doing everything perfectly, the scale is not going to go down every day or even every week or sometimes even every month. So that's not just the, that's not an accurate way to look at it. From that progression, which I think created far more uh, uh, disordered relationships with the scale, then we've, we've swung to the other extreme, right? And the fitness industry, it runs on a pendulum of extremes. So we went from the scale is everything to screw the scale. It sucks. Never step on it. It doesn't tell you who you are, anything about you. The scale is worthless. Smash it with a baseball bat. This, like, this very fanatical idea of like, what, what are you doing? Like This is... It, to me, it makes zero sense because on one hand, a lot of these people will say, the scale doesn't define you. It's just a piece of plastic. And in my mind, I'm like, that's exactly right. It doesn't define you. It's just a piece of plastic. So why are you smashing it with a baseball bat? Like if it really doesn't matter and it really isn't that big of a deal, then you shouldn't be letting it have this big of an effect on your emotions. So, so those are the two extremes of number one being like the scale is everything. And then the other extreme being like the scale is nothing. And it means absolutely nothing. Like those are both wrong. There's a middle ground here. And a lot of people don't like to hear that, but there is a middle ground. And uh, for me, the scale is, it can be a wonderful tool to help you track your data over time. And that, that's really all it is. When you begin to look at the scale as simply data over time, you remove the emotional component with it. And that's, that's my goal with everybody is to get to a point in which there is no emotion with the scale. And every time I say this, there's always at least one person who's like, yeah, but that's easier said than done. And I'm like, yes, it is easier said than done, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And literally everything is easier said than done. There isn't a single thing in the entire world that is not easier said than done. But if that's going to be your justification for not doing it, then you're setting yourself up for a life full of failure and disappointment. So for me, one of the reasons people ask, like, uh, why should I be stepping on the scale? Like, what's the point? Like, there are a number of reasons. Number one is if you're not tracking your data, you're going to be getting a very skewed idea of whether or not you're making progress, right? So for me, I think one of the reasons people have such a skewed relationship with the scale is because if they step on it on Monday, then on Tuesday, they're expecting it to go down. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and on, if they step on it on Tuesday, then Wednesday, it's, it's quote unquote, supposed to go down. This is incorrect. That's not how the scale works. And the more you understand this, the better of a relationship you're going to have with the scale. For me, when I work with my clients, I always say, listen, if you step on the scale on January 1st, we are not comparing that way in until February 1st. And we won't compare that way in until March 1st. And so January, you don't compare January 1 to January 2. And you don't compare January 1 to January 3. You don't compare January 1 to January 15. You compare January 1 to February 1. You compare February 1 to March 1. You compare January 2 to February 2, February 2 to March 2. So you compare month to month. And so when I start working with clients, I'm like, listen, we're going to start getting your weight every day. You are not allowed to be disappointed with any way in between now, between Jan 1 and February 1, because you can't compare them. It's, they're incomparable. So we're only comparing it on a month-to-month basis. And when you do that, you start to see a trend of your weight. So for example, especially I work with a vast majority of women, 75%, 80% women. One thing we'll notice is when their weight will start to spike due to their menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And, we'll, and then when you do that for three or six months, you can literally predict 
when your weight is going to spike up, regardless of how perfect you're being with your nutrition, you will see, I, I know that my weight is about to spike up four pounds for literally no other reason than it's my menstrual cycle. You can also then track how you feel when that happens. You can track when you're going to be your strongest in the gym. So you can know when to plan for personal record attempts. So you can know maybe when you should take a deload week and relax a little bit. And this is where it's all data. That's all. It's just, it's just data to help you. That number does not define who you are. It doesn't tell you anything about who you are as an individual. It doesn't tell you literally anything other than your relationship with gravity on that day. But that doesn't mean that number is worthless and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't check it. It just means that when you step on the scale and you see the number, you should remove the emotions and just keep it logical and say, cool, here's another data point, which in this one day means nothing in the grand scheme of six months, these collected data points will actually help me get a better idea of whether or not I'm moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think that's a really important point because a lot of people, when they have a fear of stepping on the scale, they'll step on it maybe like once a week or twice a week. And that's just such limited data that then, you know, Mm -hmm. you may step on the scale on a day when your weight has spiked and then if you're going to use that as like a reflection of how your week is going, even if you're doing everything right and you step on the scale and it's gone up, you might then think, okay, I'm not doing everything right. I need to change things. And that's where it just becomes a cycle of, you know, constantly changing everything and not making any progress. A hundred percent agree with that. Absolutely. Another thing people will do is they'll starve themselves for a week before they step on the scale. So like they're in preparation for stepping on the scale they're starving themselves. And I see this all the time with certain weight loss programs where people will be like, all right, we're going to have your way in on this Friday. So what they do is they starve themselves the entire week in preparation to see a number that they think will make them feel better. But then as soon as they weigh in, they eat more because they've been starving themselves. And then the next day they weigh in and they feel like shit because they weigh more than the day before as if that's a surprise that you weigh more when you ate more and you had starved yourself the week prior. And, and this is where a disordered relationship with the scale comes in when your diet is done to manipulate the scale. You shouldn't be eating or drinking in a way to manipulate the scale. You should be eating and drinking in a way to help you lose fat in a sustainable, healthy way that will probably end up with the scale decreasing over time, but not in a day or a week or a month, but over many, many months. And when you collect it in data format, well, now all of a sudden, cool, this is just another data point, not a, a, uh, a validation of my self-worth. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think like, what would you say to a client then, you know, just bringing it back to something you said earlier, um, to somebody who does have that fear of stepping on the scale, you know, and they're thinking you know, it was easier said than done to step on it each day. What approach would you take then in that case, you know, if they're just dead set against it? You know, it's a really good question. And I'm a big believer there isn't a one size fits all in, in fitness and in life in general. Um, for me, I, I look, I look at it like exercise progressions, right? Like my ideal is to get people to a point where they can go to the gym on their own and deadlift using a barbell and, and be totally fine. But if I get someone on day one, like who maybe has a lot of body fat to lose is unbelievably nervous and anxious and insecure in the gym on their own, they're, they're going to be with me and I'm going to bring them to a corner. So they're not worried about anyone looking at them. And I'm going to make sure they're only doing a few exercises that make them feel confident that are not putting them in uncomfortable positions 
things and that I know with 100% certainty they can do. And over not a week, not a month, but maybe over two years, work them to the point where they feel confident enough to go to the gym on their own, where they have the mobility and stability to deadlift from the ground. Like this, this is a progression over time. Same thing with the scale. If someone if someone cannot in this moment step on the scale without massive anxiety and without feeling like like it does define them, then I'm not going to have them step on the scale in this moment. But I, I look at it like exposure therapy, right? Like this is exposure therapy. One, this is psychology 101, right? This is if someone's scared of something, if someone has a fear of something, the absolute worst thing you can do, and this is just basic psychology, the worst thing you can do is say, don't ever go near that thing in your life. If someone's scared of spiders, you don't say, well, just don't, don't look at spiders or don't go around spiders. If someone is scared of spiders and they have legitimate fear of it, in exposure therapy, well, first, maybe they would say, okay, here's a drawing of a spider. And they show them a drawing of a spider. And they do this progressively over time. And then once they're more comfortable with it, they're like, cool, here's a legitimate photograph of a spider. So now they're looking at one in their hands. Then they do that for a little while. Then the next time they might say, okay, here's a, a video of a spider. And then the, the next time they might say, there's a spider in a building across the street. Nowhere near here, but in the cross the street, not in this building. And then later, they'll in, in a subsequent progression, they'll be like, there's a spider in this building, in the basement of this building. And then maybe they'll say like, cool, there's a spider in the next room. It's in a cage. It can't get in here, but it's in the next room. And then they'll be like, there's a spider in this room, in a cage. It cannot get out, but there's a spider in this room. You can't even see it. Then subsequently, they'll be like, hey, here, look at the spider in this cage right here. You, you can see it, but it can't touch you. And then eventually you're holding the spider in your hand because you've progressively worked your way to getting to the point where the spider doesn't scare you as much and it doesn't control you. This is how you get over a fear is by facing it. You don't get over a fear by smashing it with a baseball bat and pretending like it's the worst thing in the world. That's, that increases the fear of it. One of my favorite quotes from Hermione Granger in Harry Potter, fear of, a, fear, of a, fear of a name only increases fear of the thing itself right? It's like the more you make it out to be this like unspeakable thing that you can't ever deal with, the bigger of a fear it becomes. So if I'm working with someone who has a real fear of it in this moment, maybe I'm not, I'm not weighing themselves. I'm not having them weigh themselves yet. Maybe we're working on measurements. Maybe we're working on looking at their strength increases at that point in time. But eventually in, in an ideal scenario, I'll get them to start being able to weigh themselves to get to a point where they can step on the scale without any issues. And I'll, I'll say without question, there are some people who never get to that point because not every single scenario gets to an ideal point, but it doesn't mean they can't improve their relationship with the scale. I mean, I see some people on social media who they have such a bad relationship with the scale that they get angry at other people who weigh themselves. And to me, that's just mind boggling. It's like, just because you have a bad relationship with the scale does not mean that you have to go on other people's page and berate them and shame them because they're weighing themselves and they have a healthy relationship with it. So for me, a uh, uh, next step for that person would be like accepting that maybe it's not okay for you at this point in your life, but that doesn't mean it's not okay for someone else. So there's always a progression and not everybody reaches the end of the progression, but I try and help them get as close as possible. Yeah, very true. And I think like a really good point you made there is just normalizing it and like, you know, exposure therapy, as you said, big thing, um, but just making it something that's normal and not, you know, making it out to be like this really big deal every day. Um, so yeah, that's a really good point. And hopefully something that some people can take away from this. And, and I'll also say this, you know, I, I've, 
for anyone who doesn't know, like I struggled with binge eating as a result of wrestling. Uh, I had some serious disordered relationships with food because of wrestling and weight cutting and all of that. And there were periods of my life where the scale dictated my every waking moment. Like if I stepped on the scale and it went down, the day was good. If I stepped on the scale and it went up, the day was ruined. And that happened to me for a number of years. And even now at this point in my life, I weigh myself daily. Sometimes let's say I'm in a fat loss phase. If there's a big spike up one day, it's not like I'm perfect and I'm emotionless and I'm just like, and I'm just a Zen Buddha where I'm just like, oh yes, though the number doesn't bother me at all. There's emotions are real and we're, we're supposed to have emotions. The key is to not let those emotions dictate your actions. So if I step on the scale one day, I have a four pound spike up for any number of reasons, which is not uncommon. There might be an initial gut like, oh, but then the logical side comes in and it overtakes the emotion and says, it's okay. And you know that. And then I go on in my day and my day is totally fine. The issue is when that emotion encapsulates every, every aspect of your being and then makes your day ruined. And then it causes you to starve yourself, or maybe it causes you to binge. This is the, what's inappropriate and what we have to work against. Having an initial gut response isn't inherently bad. You're a human being. That's okay. It's just, what do we do with that? Do you let that emotion overtake your logic or do you sit back, take a deep breath and say, Hey, not a big deal. It's just data and move on. Mm -hmm. Really good point. And actually that brings me to something else I want to do and discuss with you on this is um, just the way people will often take something that happens to them or, you know, take, um, say they have like something that they feel like they shouldn't eat when they're dieting. And then they take that as a sign to just screw it all. And just that's mm. the day over, you know, that's kind of like their fuck it moment. And they're like, well, I've just <laughs> eaten, you know, a slice of pizza. That means the whole day is ruined. I may as well just eat everything else for this day as well. <laughs> And I feel like that's something a lot of people really struggle with. Oh yeah. That was the whole, whole reason why I did the Big Mac challenge, right? One Big Mac a day, every day for 30 days. And I lost seven pounds in the process. And that was before I did it. That was my goal. It was like my stated goal. I was like, I want people to know that you can have a slice of pizza at your daughter's birthday party without feeling like you need to starve yourself the entire next day for making up for the damage, right? Like that, that, that's, that's ridiculous. That doesn't exist. No one ever got skinny from having one salad. No one ever got fat from having one donut. That's not how this works. Um, I think, and it, it's one thing that I found very interesting is the a lot of the people who I've worked with over the years who've really struggled with their weight, they often say something like, I'm an all or nothing person. I'm either not eating it at all, or I'm eating the entire pizza. It's a very common phrase and train of thought that I hear from these people. And I always try and break it down in conversation and, and understand what, it, what is this coming from? Like where, where does that train of thought come from? Where does that emotion come from? Why do they believe this? And what I found is what's going on most of the time is they're all or nothing in this scenario. They're either not eating at all or eating an entire pizza and maybe more is because they've labeled that food as bad. And they think that because they've had one of them, they've completely blown everything. So if they think that having one slice of pizza has blown everything, well, then they already messed up. It's already screwed up. What's the point of, of, but you might as well eat the whole thing if you've already ruined all of your progress. So in their mind, it's justified because they think it's ruined anyway. So for me, I don't know if you can hear the New York City honking in the background right now. 
<laughs> um, they, the people in this apartment told me the, the windows were soundproof when I moved in and they are most certainly not soundproof. <laughs> um, for, for one of the, the biggest things I've tried to work to help people towards is understanding that sort of what I said, like no one ever got skinny from having one salad. No one ever got fat from having one donut, or one slice of pizza. You, you didn't, you didn't fuck up. You, you didn't mess up. And it was funny when I, in 2000, I believe it was 2014, I made a video course for my, my online coaching clients. Cause I'd been working with online clients for a few years at that point. And, uh, I was like, I need to come up with something to help them to, so they can not so they don't just need to hear from me every day. I want them to have a course, uh, a vault of, of videos that come in a predetermined order, in a very deliberate order to help them with their struggles. And it, I spent a long time trying to figure out what video should they get first? Like what's the most important video my nutrition clients need to know on, on a deep emotional foundational level for their success? And I've realized that the most important one for them to get was the video that was titled, You Can't Fuck This Up. And this has since become the most popular uh, social media post that I put out once every few months, um, basically saying, I-, I don't care if you ate way over your calories one day. I don't care if you, if you didn't work out for a week or a month or a year. I don't care what you did. The only way to fail is if you quit, period. So I don't care if you have a slice of pizza. I don't care if you have the whole pizza. You didn't fuck up. Just get right back on track. And what I found with that is when people internalize that message, they no longer justify they no longer justify binging because they think they failed because they know they didn't right so as soon as they remove that thought process the desire to binge is diminished because as soon as they have they can have one two three slices of pizza without feeling guilty and when the guilt is removed the desire to binge is removed mm-hmm. very true and i think yeah two things come into play with that i guess like that's a really good point and i think also removing the black and white thinking around food. And I think that's something that unfortunately, you know, probably is something that's, you know, come of media, social media and marketing, you know, and looking at like various different diets, people start to think, you know, certain foods are healthy and certain foods are unhealthy. And mm-hmm. having that approach to food is what sets a lot of people back because yet, yeah, like you said, they see something as a bad food that they should avoid. And then they start restricting those foods. And that then in turn may lead to them overeating them in future because they've cut them out for so long. Yeah, I 100% agree with you without question. Yeah. And I think like a really good, a better approach then obviously is including those foods in your diet and not being afraid of them. And as you said, removing the guilt mindset around certain foods as well. Yeah. And and again, easier said than done, right? It's like, yeah. well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, and da, 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 it's easier, it, it is easier said than done. It's very difficult. And it doesn't mean that on your first try, you're going to get it. Like you might be like, okay, cool. Pizza's not bad. I know this. I love this podcast. This was such a cool conversation. They really changed my life. Then like you go have a slice of pizza, then you binge and eat the whole thing. It's like, cool. That's one data point. It was your first shot. Like when did you ever massively succeed at anything on your first attempt? This is something that you have to work on forever. This is, this is a lifelong pursuit. And I think and, and the, the, you can't fuck this up mentality goes to your attempts as well. It's like, it was your first attempt. People are like, well, I listened to your podcast and it still didn't work. I'm like, how many times did you try? One. Cool. Good luck. Like, keep going. Give it a year, two years, three years. This is something that we, we're constantly trying to better and improve ourselves. If you just think you're going to get it the first try, like you're, you're out of your mind. It's yeah. completely unrealistic. 
everything would be so much easier if that was the case. Wouldn't yeah. it? If, if, if you wouldn't have a job, I wouldn't have a job. Like nobody would have a job if all you had to do was try something one time to perfect it. Like there would be no, everyone would be an expert in everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a really good um, mindset to take as well when it comes to, you know, changing your lifestyle and changing your habits, because that's an important part of, you know, going on a health and fitness journey is like looking at like your current habits and what they are resulting in at the moment and what little changes you might need to make to your daily habits in order to live a healthier lifestyle and to make changes that, you know, will last longer than say a few days or a few weeks and will ensure that your results last longer than that as well. A hundred percent agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, final question for you before we finish up, because I know we're running, uh, running out of time here is, um, you know, say if somebody was at the start of their health and fitness journey mm. now, and they're thinking, this is a really big mountain to climb. You know, I have a long yeah. way to go. What would you say would be your advice just to get started and take some simple steps today? I love that. I love I think it's a really important question because I think it's something a lot of people struggle with. Like there's so much information. There's so much conflicting information. There's so much misinformation. There's so many people saying do this and other people saying do that. It's hard to know. It's hard to know where to begin and it's hard to motivate yourself to begin because you don't know what's actually best. For me, I think some of the best advice I've been able to give people is all of the, the, the complex stuff is a, is a waste of time. Do the things that just make sense from a, a logical common sense perspective. So start with just one. So what's one simple thing. And when I say this stuff, people think like, Oh, well that's, that's too simple. That's not going to work. It's like, no, no, this is literally what I do with my clients and it works incredibly well. Start walking, like set a step count every day. If you're completely sedentary and you're not getting a thousand steps in a day, aim for a thousand steps. And if that's too much, because that is too much for, for some people, especially if this is the very beginning of your journey, you have a lot of body fat to lose, like you, you have no idea where to begin. I've had some clients, I just say, listen, I want you to walk around your house one time today, just like get outside and walk around your house one time. Or I've had other clients be like, listen, by the end of the day, I want you to go up and down your staircase in your home five total times, whatever it is. And then maybe the, the next month will increase it to 10 total times. I, for me, I, if someone asked me years ago, what do I think is more important to start with nutrition or exercise years ago? I would have said nutrition first, because I think nutrition has the biggest impact, uh, most quickly, especially from a weight loss perspective. Now I've shifted and I say exercise because even though nutrition, I think has the biggest impact most quickly, I've realized it's a much bigger hurdle than movement and exercise because movement and exercise is as simple as just getting up getting up and and moving that's that it's which is a big step that's not an easy hurdle for many people but it's easier than saying hey we're going to change your entire nutrition it's easier than saying hey so instead of this we're going to have you making a, a big salad it's either easier than saying like i want you to to get more fruits in your diet like that those are relatively easy compared to other things in nutrition that we could be doing like getting a certain amount of protein every day whatever it is but Exercise is, I think, the lowest hanging fruit that actually has a tremendous amount of benefit, starting with just getting more steps in. I'm the biggest proponent of walking. Like, if I could make one thing cool, it'd be walking. That would, that'd be it. If, like, if there's one thing I could make cool, that would be it. And keep in mind, I'm a world record power lifter. Like, I'm a meathead. I love lifting weights. Like, I would love it if everybody would get in the gym and start lifting. But 
the, the vast majority of people just need to move more. Like they just need to move. And if people knew the, the effects on a cellular level, level of what walking does to your body physiologically, like everybody would walk, even for as little as 20 minutes a day, if people knew how much it impacted your, on a cellular level, everybody would do it. It's unbelievable for you. And it doesn't take that much to help. And, um, so yeah, I would say start walking for sure. And, and one of the cool parts about that is it's a cliche like, oh yeah, once you start exercising, it elevates your endorphins and you feel better, but it's true. And I haven't met anybody ever who once they got up, went on a five minute walk, who didn't feel better about themselves for it. And then what do they do when they feel better? They start drinking more water. Maybe they grab an apple. They start eating a little bit better because they believe in their ability to succeed. Now, a lot of times you take someone who just starting with nutrition, they don't know where to begin. They don't know what foods to have. It's just very overwhelming. Some people say it has to be organic. Some people say it has to be low carb. Some people say it has to be low fat. You don't know who to believe. So you're just sort of winging it. And then you don't believe in your ability to succeed. You don't like the food you're eating. It tastes like cardboard Like you don't know what to do. And so it's easy to just say, you know what? Screw it. I quit. But with movement, you, you can't fuck that up. Like you, you just move, you walk, you, you either took 500 steps or you didn't you either went up and down your staircase or you didn't. And every time you do it, you'll feel better. And you're going to, there's something about it that literally improves your mood to the point of you saying like, you know what, I'm going to get some more water. I'm going to have an apple. And, and you can almost block out the noise of the nonsense in the industry a little bit more easily because you've just improved your, your mood, your self-efficacy, your confidence. You're like, fuck it. I'm going to listen to the common sense inside my head, which says fruit, water, lean proteins, vegetables is probably a really good idea. So then you've now accomplished both movement and nutrition rather than only focusing on one. Yeah. Awesome. And I think that's great because, yeah, like you said, taking one little step will often have an effect on everything else. And then it's just that flow on effect to get that momentum to keep you going. And before you know it, you're making, you know, small changes each day and taking steps and they start to become new habits, which then, you know, results in change. That's it. A hundred percent. That's exactly right. Well, before we finish up, Jordan, I have three fun questions that I was going to ask at the start, but we'll finish up with those <laughs> ones and, and then I'll leave you to your day. Um, so question number one, what does your morning routine look like? My morning routine usually looks like I wake up around between seven to eight, depending on the day. And I get up, I have coffee, I write my, my daily goals down, like what I want to accomplish that day. And then I go to jujitsu. I have jujitsu six days a week at nine in the morning. And then I come back, shower, I relax for 30 to 45 minutes. And then I just jump into my work. Right. Are you like a, a late, like start work a little bit later and finish a bit later? Or what kind of way do you schedule your day? You know, I've been different types throughout my my career. There were some periods in my career where I'd, I used to wake up at four in the morning and I would just get started and get coffee and start writing and making content. There were other periods where I'd like stay up until I'd stay up until three or four in the morning and I was working. Um, right now, I'm more of a wake up like moderate. It's not super early. I wake up between seven to eight. Um, and I, it's like me time. So I get to enjoy myself. I relax a little bit. I don't jump in anything crazy. I get my workout in. I do jujitsu, hang out with some friends there. And then I really start my, my creative process and my working stuff around like 11 to 12. I see. Yeah. You got a nice little start to the day and I'm not going into work mode right away. Yeah. Yeah. It's for, and that might change in the future. Um, 
I'm pretty malleable with it. Like I, I'm, I'm okay with changing and uh, on the fly, but for right now, it's been wonderful just to wake up and spend the first few hours focusing on me, fill my own cup so that I can fill other people's cups throughout the day. Yeah. Super important. Next question is what was the best book you've read recently? Anti-fragile. Um, the author's name is, uh, I think it's Nassim Taleb. Um, I always forget like the order, either Taleb Nassim or Nassim Taleb. Wonderful book. Really, really great book. It's the idea of it being, we have fragile and we know what fragile means. Like it it breaks very, very easily. Um, But we don't often think about what the opposite of fragile is. So let me, like, what do you think? When you think of opposite of fragile, what do you think? Like tough, unbreakable. Okay. That's what I thought too, before I read the book. Yeah. Um, that's usually what we think. So fragile as it breaks very easily, we think the opposite is that it's unbreakable. But if you really think about it, the opposite of fragile would be every time it breaks, it reinforces and gets even stronger. Right. right? So it's like, if you have a vase, a vase is very fragile. It like, and then let's say your little nephew comes into the living room and he bumps into the table and the vase falls off and shatters. Like, well, that's not good. But what if when the vase shattered, it got put back together and it was stronger. So it was harder to break. And then the next times it break, it gets even stronger. So it builds up into this thing that is just stronger than it ever could have possibly been before. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so he's talking about becoming anti-fragile as a human and, and setting up your life in ways to uh, protect yourself against any number of things, not least of which is what he calls in another book, a black swan event. And it, it actually it couldn't have come at a better time because a black swan event is a very rare, unlikely event to happen that just can completely devastate either one person or an entire world. So in this instance, the coronavirus, like yeah. a pandemic. And so he, it was, he wrote this book years ago, but it was really cool to read during the pandemic being like, as a black swan event is happening right now, like how can you set yourself up to be anti-fragile? And uh, just as a business owner, he, one of the things he was talking about was Listen, if it's crazy because there were so many parallels during this pandemic. He's like, imagine if something happens and and so many people are getting like most people look at a nine to five job with a salary as very safe. But there are some instances and in that is in which it's very fragile because that means you either have your salary or if you get fired from your job, you have no salary anymore. You need to find a new job. But what if you look at someone like an Uber driver or you look at someone who's a business owner, they, they're an entrepreneur their salary, their, their money, it might fluctuate more on a day-to-day basis. It's a little bit more volatile, but it, it's not either making money or not making money. It's they can make money on their own no matter what. They can always get more money in the door, which is actually more of an anti-fragile job as opposed to the one where you're relying on someone else entirely and you either have the paycheck or you don't. And so it, it was one cool aspect of that, but I loved that book and I would strongly recommend it. Awesome. Sounds like a really good concept. I'm interested to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> I love asking that question because I love getting book recommendations. And <laughs> I'll definitely look into it. And um, last question for you then is, are you a coffee or tea person? Coffee, coffee, a hundred percent. I, uh, I do like tea at night. Uh, I like ginger tea. I really like ginger tea at night, but, uh, the majority of my, my tea or coffee intake comes from coffee significantly. Yeah. You'd have to be on, on the coffee in New York, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Jordan. Before you go, can you let the listeners know where they can find you? 
Yeah. If you want to find me, my own podcast, the Jordan Syatt mini podcast or YouTube Jordan Syatt, if you Google my name, Jordan Syatt, S-Y-A-T-T, you'll, you'll find a whole bunch. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This was a blast. You're an incredible host. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. And that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And if you did enjoy it, please feel free to send this episode to a friend, family member, colleague, or anybody else who you feel would benefit from what we discussed on today's episode. If you are enjoying the podcast and you're listening on Apple, please feel free to leave me a review and rating as it really helps the visibility of the podcast. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be informed of every future episode. I will speak to you guys in the next episode.